Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, we're waiting. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Golf Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your buddy Adam Fonseca over at uh, golfunfiltered.com. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a podcast, so I'm glad you stuck with us. Uh, we are joined today by uh, Mr. Bill Hobson, the executive producer and host of Michigan Golf Live. Bill, how are you today? I'm doing great, considering that we just had snowfall in Michigan uh, yesterday and today. Go figure. It's I guess oh, it's that no. time of year, but you're you're still never really ready for it. <laughs> oh yeah, we uh, as you know, we're in the Chicago area here, and we've not yet. I'm crossing my fingers had snow on the ground, but I know uh, many many of our friends in the neighboring Midwest states are uh, not so lucky. <laughs> it's a very dark time when that happens, and you just you know you hold out hope for a couple more chances to get out and see it up, but eventually all good things come to an end, and. I think for those of us in the Midwest, it's part of what helps us become so rabid about the game when we can play it because we, we, we don't take it for granted. That's absolutely true. You know, I'm actually lucky enough to get out this Saturday. Uh, I think it's supposed to be high of 70 this Saturday where I'm at, and I think that's going to be the last decent day I'm going to see for months. Yeah, so come in, <laughs> so come in <laughs> while you can get them, my man, because they will disappear and in your part of the world, when they go away, they go they go a long ways away. <laughs> they sure do. They most certainly do. Well, Bill, uh, thanks again for being on the show today. Um, well, I wanted to give my listeners, uh, and for those of you who have listened to the show, we like to have golf media types of all sorts on the show because we like to kind of, you know, pick the brains, Bill, of, of different people and uh, just learn a little bit from their experiences covering the game. But why don't we start off by you giving us a little bit of background and how you got your start covering this great game of golf and a little bit about Michigan Golf Live. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I hope it's um, a story that will, A, keep everybody awake, but, B, also let you know that you don't, you don't have to have millions of dollars or a big corporation behind you to get started following your passion, whatever it happens to be. This uh, 2017 will be the 18th year of Michigan Golf Live. Our flagship wow. program is our radio show, and um, it's syndicated on nine stations around the state from April until September. And then we added a TV show about 10 years ago that is in three and a half million homes in Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. And the best way for me to tell you how it got started is just to take you back to a time when there was a PGA tour, tour event called the Buick Open, which sadly went away back in 2009. But many, many moons ago, when that tournament was basically in my backyard, I really, really got the bug to do something more in media uh, about golf. I had worked in media since I was kind of a little kid, starring in TV commercials for my dad's businesses. They were 
horrible commercials. I hope the tapes <laughs> never surfaced again. But it is what has me uh, has me in media today versus uh, running car dealerships because I, I I love the the other part of it as opposed to watching my dad work those eighteen hour days. So I had an idea for a radio program. I called around to several radio general managers that I had met over several years because I worked in television um, coming right out of college. I called these general managers and I asked them uh, their thoughts on a concept about a, a show that would be entertaining that might even appeal to some non-golfers, but would actually be, you know, I hope you're sitting down, golf on the radio. Oh, crazy. And, well, it is crazy from a from a broad definition standpoint. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but we, we really set out to have fun with the game, to do a lot of interviews, to take live calls. Uh, to be a little goofy, to not treat golf like brain surgery, and uh, but to still respect the game. And um, I got some encouraging feedback from those very small radio station general managers. But like these five stations in year one, you could yell out your window and reach about as many people. <laughs> but they got me started, and uh, and I made a phone call to a guy that I had never met before, who was at the time the director of marketing from the Buick Open. And I said, I want you to hear my idea, and right now, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you, but I think in three or four years down the road, it'll be a really good idea, and it'll, it'll be a great value for you. And here's my offer. If you will underwrite the cost of my satellite uplink time, I will make you the title sponsor of my show, and I will never, as long as we're partners together, I'll never change the price. Wow. And I said, the first few years, that's not going to be a very good deal for you. But I think if, if my plan has any chance of working, I think by year three or four, it's going to be a great bargain and your price is never going to change. And, and for some odd reason, a man by the name of P.J. Danhoff said, we'll give it a try. Huh. Sure enough, every single year from then until the end of the Buick in 2009, every spring we would have a phone call. He would say, how much this year? And I would say, same as year one. And he would say, you know, you're crazy now. I said, no, I made you a promise. I'm a man of my word. And they were my title sponsor. And we just grew. We grew into several stations and all the top markets. And thankfully, we've been blessed by um, loyal partners and, uh, and listeners. And, and then the TV show has only served to make that even a better vehicle, uh, because now we've added about three and a half million homes that for some odd reason, put up with my mug on their screen um, every Saturday and Sunday morning. So that's, that's kind of it in a very rapid form. But I have come to learn, Adam, over all these years, that almost every major happening in my golf career has come because of the kindness of other people. It, you know, it starts with a, maybe a decent idea. And I, I, you know, I guess that that's, that's how the how the ball gets rolling. But I, I can tell you without hesitation that whether it's the creation of Michigan Golf Live, whether it's um, unbelievable bucket list moments that have happened over all these years or whatever, that there's only so much that I could do to make those things happen. And, it, and after that, it really has dep depended on the kindness of others. And I've been really blessed to meet some great people in the game, and they have helped open doors for me. So there you go. That's an amazing story. And, you know, I, I've 
done a little bit of research just on your site, michigangolflive.com. And, you know, you and I have corresponded over social media and email in the past. But, you know, I, I guess I never really understood uh, how you got started. And, and just it, it seems that uh, based on the background you gave, you've got certainly a wide breadth of audience. And that's just that's an amazing story. And, and uh, how much uh, in terms of your team has it grown? I mean, is it, is it just you or do you have a team of folks that assist you with uh, MGL? I have a great team uh, for the TV show. For radio, it's pretty much me. Um, but for TV, um, I have a production director that's worked with me for actually I've known him since he was a teenager. So he's been with me forever, but he's worked on the show since it started. Uh, the man is probably headed for therapy at some point because he has seen so many of my golf swings <laughs> that I cannot imagine how he can even sleep at night without waking up in cold sweat. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, and, and he's, so he's, he's the director of production. I have another gentleman who is with us on almost every shoot. Um, and thankfully, my son really enjoys being a part of the process, so he's part of our team. But I know some shows travel with crews of, 10, 15 people to do a half hour program, we travel light. You know, we, we've got four of us that will usually go. It'll take us a couple days. And I guess, you know, everybody listening to your podcast can judge for themselves. All of our shows are available on our YouTube channel. And um, we, we're pretty proud of them. You know, obviously we're not perfect, but, but we really work hard at it. And, um, and thankfully, the response from both viewers and the destinations that we feature have been really, really strong to the point where we, um, I think each of the last seven or eight years, we've, we've kind of been sold out um, from all of our, our available weeks. So something's working. And I, I can't imagine it's my pretty face because that would be a very, very dangerous thing to rely on. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're you're doing a great job. I mean, obviously, if you've been around for 18 years doing doing MGL, I mean, you're obviously doing something right. And so, uh, you know, Bill, uh, prior to us coming on today, you actually sent me a picture uh, over Twitter. And you can follow Bill uh, on Twitter at MGL Bill. Uh, it seems like you've had some great opportunities to meet some great people, as you just mentioned, but also to experience some amazing things. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that picture that you sent us? Uh, was that sure. you and, uh, and uh, someone special in your life at Butler Cabin? That's my son. And, uh, you know, I told you that so much of what's happened to me has been because of the kindness of other people. That Butler Cabin moment is maybe the all-time greatest example. Um, and again, I'll try to keep it brief because I could probably push you to sleep with the full version of this story. <laughs> no worries. Uh, but I, um, I have a committee that helps me put together a big golf event to benefit the Folds of Honor Foundation. We had a meeting, and one of the gentlemen in the meeting was new to me. And so we got to talking, and it turns out that he's, he's a very, very um, active and um, – well, he golfs everywhere, and he's got some wealth, and he's well-connected. And I just happened to say to him, hey, if you ever come across a couple of tickets to the Masters, uh, my son's birthday is that week. This year it's his 18th, and I'd love to surprise him by taking him. You know, you have to understand, Adam, I've met people for no, nearly two decades now who have always said to me, oh, yeah, that's not a problem. Yeah, I can, <laughs> well, it's always been a problem, apparently, because it's not happened. Right. Um, and we'll talk about golf media a little bit later, but Augusta, I have um, on my studio wall all of my framed rejection letters for media credentials. 
<laughs> from Augusta. I can't get media passes. I can cover any event in the world with that one. So this gentleman named Dave says to me, well, I'll do some checking. And I figured that's never going to come back up again and whatever. But it was kind of him to at least make me think that maybe he'd check on it. A couple of weeks go by, and it's about 10 days, maybe two weeks before Master's Week. And I'm sitting in the same chair I'm talking to you from. I get a call, and it's Dave. He says, hey, what are you doing on Thursday, April 7th? And I said, well, I don't know, probably watching the Masters on my couch. And he says, so, well, why don't you come down to Augusta and watch it? Wow. I've got two badges for you. And, by the way, they're clubhouse badges. <laughs> like, what? You know, I, so I put together a mock-up invitation like Augusta sends to its players and I wrapped it up in a box, and for my son's birthday, he had a surprise thing to open up, and I captured it on video. He's 18, and, you know, it's awfully hard to have something cool happen from us old people uh, in the world of a teenager, but he broke into tears. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it was so cool. So, real quickly, I throw together a flight. We go down. It turns out that one of my longtime friends named John works for CBS during the Masters. And we met him out by the putting green on Thursday morning. And he said to me, how would you guys like to go somewhere where nobody gets to go? And, you know, the answer to that is fairly obvious. Yes. So he starts walking us over to Butler Cabin. Now, I'd been to Augusta before, but obviously I'd never been in the cabin. And my son had never, never been there. We get down, he walks us into the tiny little area that you see in the picture where the, where the green jacket is presented in front of the fireplace. They have it all perfectly lit uh, because they had just finished doing a little shoot that morning. And one of the technicians says, why don't you guys go up and let me take your picture in the chairs? Okay? Yeah. We take about two, two steps towards the chairs, and a producer comes in the, front, in the side door, Somewhat frantically, he says, no, 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 no. Everybody, everybody, hang on. He's on his way. He's on his way. Well, we had no idea what in the world that meant. And then he said, Mr. Palmer is on his way in. Oh, wow. And he, so this was going from surreal to, if there's a level above that, more surreal. Arnold had decided, sort of of his own volition, to do... Uh, a farewell sort of interview with Jim Nance. This is Thursday morning. Nance had not planned on it. He wasn't in a, in a tie. He wasn't in a suit. We stepped to the back of the room, and a couple of seconds later, they asked us if we wouldn't mind stepping outside. This was going to be a private moment between Jim and Arnold. Well, sure. I mean, what am I going to say? How dare you? So, <laughs> right. My friend John says, let's go watch it from the trailer, the production truck over in the compound. So, what, you know, it's just crazy. So this is like a, uh, this is almost like a, a dream sequence. Yeah. So we go back to the CBS compound. We watch this really special moment unfold between Arnold and Nance. It never aired. My guess is that this next year before the Masters, he'll probably see a special, like an hour-long farewell to Arnold special. Where much of that will air, we got to watch it from up close. We stood behind the production, you know, the directors and all these longtime veterans of the Masters, and they were in tears. 
And as soon as it ended, we headed back over to the same backdoor butler cabin. We stood outside the door until Arnold walked out and stood right before us for a few minutes and, you know, got a quick hello. And then we went in and had the picture taken that you saw. That was the start of a day that really only got better as we're having lunch up on the, uh, on the lawn under the green umbrella tables surrounded by Stadler and Watson and another um, uh, Sandy Lyle and their families all in their green jackets. Oh, my wow. son and I are sitting there going, this is not right. And I say that, and I, I don't want to drag the story out too long, and some of your listeners are thinking, a little late for that. No, no, no. Um, this is a great, great story. <laughs> well, I, I tell you the story because it only happened because other people were kind. That's yeah. it. I have no power. You know, my son was thanking me for it later on. Uh, the day was literally a 23-hour day. We, we, we got to Augusta at um, 6 a.m., at the end of the day, we drove back to the Atlanta airport, flew home to uh, Detroit, drove home from Detroit. It was two hours north of there. We got home at 4 a.m. Oh, wow. And it was the craziest day ever. He got up and went to school. <laughs> and uh, But it, along that route, you know, he um, at the end of that day, we went into the, into the battle that is the Augusta Merchandise Center and, uh, you know, Walmart on Black Friday kind of crowd. Right. And um, I said to him, we may never have, we may never get back here. We certainly aren't going to have this level of experience again. Spend a few hundred dollars on yourself and get some stuff. We got to the checkout line and he had like three small items for himself that were around a hundred dollars. And I said, no, no, let's go get you some stuff, man. I want you to hold on to this. I want you to remember it. And he said, they don't sell anything in here that could top what's happened to me today. And as a dad, those are the kind of life-changing memories that you can't buy. And, and so I will forever, A, be really thankful to those two gentlemen. Uh, we wrote about it, by the way, extensively on our blog page at the website. If you go and you click on blog, you can read this whole story. And he helped, my son helped me write it from his perspective because it's such a reminder of the, the things that we can do for other people. Right. And so I've tried to keep that fresh in mind. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we sort of added another bucket list to it with our week at the Ryder cup and um, some similar sort of experiences, although as you can imagine, very different as well, but we've had a good year and um, it, it's been one where, where I have tried to remember all the time, yeah, I've done a little bit of the work for this, but the, the vast majority of these doors have been opened just by really nice other people. That is, uh, I, I don't say this lightly, Bill. I, that might be the best Augusta story I've ever heard. That It's stunning, man. That was it's, a, it's, wow. i, I got to tell you, Adam, yeah, I, uh, let me take you back to the beginning of the day. Sure. Here's what I knew I wanted to happen. We, we were staying in an Airbnb, turned out to be a mansion that I got for like $60, but who knew? Um, but I had to, we had to get up at like 4.30 to drive to Augusta to get there by 6, to meet the guy with our badges, because he was, he was, we were only using them for that day. And I said to my son, his name is Bo, I said, Bo, 
if we're going to get up this early, one thing that I want to do is get to the first tee and get, get you know, be, be up close for the ceremonial tee shots. So we got there early enough. Now, I have a lifelong history with navigational issues. Me and directions, <laughs> we have problems. I argue with Siri uh, when Siri's right. You, everybody listening to your podcast is a golfer. Otherwise, they're really lost. Right. And you, you all understand that pretty much every place you golf, the first tee is really close to the clubhouse. That's generally how it works, especially in a private club. Exactly. Well, not if you're following me. So, <laughs> you know, there's the clubhouse, and I say to him, oh, we're going to go this way, and then we're going to go over this way, and this way, and, you know, he's just following along, and we end up lost. But, like, the first tee is the easiest tee to find, not us. <laughs> we end up down in the middle of nowhere, and I see this big wall, the backside of a grandstand, and I said to him, I think that I've screwed up. I don't, I don't think we have time to make it back to the first tee because it's straight uphill and it's like 94 miles away. But I think if you take a peek around the right side of this grandstand, I think you're going to like what you see. Because I did realize that we had come out right beside 13 green. That was my guess. It, yeah. And so it's the famous, everybody's got that picture. And we walked out and he literally, his jaw just dropped. And he said, I didn't know it was this real, but I thought it was like a, like a TV trick. And so the whole day kind of went like that, where even if I messed something up, it still worked out pretty well. And, um, and so we've had that kind of a year where we played some bucket list golf and we went to, he's been to two professional golf events in his life, the masters and Ryder cup. So the bar is set fairly high for him. Yeah. Those are pretty good events to go to. <laughs> Yeah, and, um, you know, Adam, I've been to a number of majors and, and golf events by myself, and, and that's fine, and it's part of, part of the work that I do, but there's nothing that's ever been better than being able to watch his jaw drop in those moments. And I, I bring that up not because I um, feel any special or anything like that, but to encourage your listeners to just take in those memorable moments, wherever they happen to be. It doesn't have to be at the Masters, but just in every setting where it's, where the time you're spending with the people you're with is actually the highlight. And I, I think we often get sidetracked into complaining about, about the green speeds or, you know, some other really silly little frivolous um, uh, side story, so to speak. It's very common amongst media guys you know, in the media centers of different tournaments where they just sit there and complain all day about everything, including the free food. Right. And I just look at him. I, I remember saying to, to a guy once on a media trip that I was on who was just complaining the whole time. And I finally said, listen, dude, I have too many friends that work real jobs to listen to you cry like a baby. <laughs> uh, we're spoiled rotten in what we do. And, and hopefully I can take those opportunities and excite people about the game. And that's, that's what we've been trying to do for all these years on the show. So we've, we're kind of rounding out a, a highlight reel season, and, um, and, and then we'll crank it up again uh, next spring. 
Just amazing stuff, Bill. And, you know, it's funny because I've had the opportunity, I've worked for a few different publications and outlets and, you know, much like you just started, you know, what was originally ChicagoDuffer.com and became GolfUnfiltered.com. Just an idea in my head while watching the PGA Tour. And to your point, you know, through the kindness of of just people who love the game, I've been able to experience pretty amazing things. Not, nothing certainly to the level of the story you just shared with your son uh, at Augusta. But, you know, uh, it's funny you mentioned, you know, golf media members, longstanding golf media members who might complain about, you know, their their job or whatever else, just like anyone else would complain about theirs. But, you know, it, it really kind of touches on a topic I want to talk a little bit with you about and just golf media in general at this point. You know, we, one of the topics we've talked about on Golf and Filtered many times in the past has been these two competing worlds, you could say, of golf media. You've got the traditionalists who, uh, you know, more so do the long-form writing and certainly maybe write for a, a paper publication. And now, of course, over the last 10 years or so, we've had this birth of bloggers and, and the Internet age, and now we see all of the major publications uh, taking on golf blogging styles. What is your overall impression of where golf media has gone over the years uh, coming from a guy such as yourself that's been in it for for uh, almost two decades well it used to be that newspapers would have dedicated golf writers and in many cases those almost always men would travel to well over half of the tour events uh, and certainly all of them that were in their geographical region and they would that would be their assignment um, in my part of the world, in Michigan, I can name, you know, the guys who forever wrote for the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News. And then um, the dinosaurs that our newspapers refused to change their business model, and so they ended up slashing that part of their coverage. Um, I can remember when we did still have the Buick Open, they, you know, you, you'd all of a sudden look over and see a football writer covering it because they no longer had their golf writers. And at the same time, um, at the same time, everybody's wondering why the game seems to be going through a bit of a decline. And my answer to that has been pretty consistent, and that is you, you stop talking about it. So it becomes less a part of the popular culture and the choice for recreation. Obviously, it takes too long. There's a little bit of financial concern and all that. Um, and through all of that, the media outlets that have made those staffing decisions to eliminate golf, I believe are losing out on loyal readership. Golfers are loyal people. Um, we love the game. We love to follow it. If you don't think that we love the game, dig up some highlight reels from what happened at Hazeltine for a solid half a week and listen to the, just the, the sounds of the crowd. We love our game, but we get a little spoiled. And so golf media has transitioned into uh, what I still believe are two very distinct groups. And I saw it on display at Ryder Cup. We have the longtime veterans who do, um, they do a lot of events. You know, I don't know how Doug Ferguson from the Associated Press even survives. He does every event. He's on the road nonstop. He is for most most of you listening, if you read any golf coverage from an event in your local paper, look at the byline, and it will say, Doug Ferguson, Associated Press. More than it used to say, Yeah, it used to say the name of somebody in your own town. It doesn't anymore. 
Um, so you have that, Doug's in his own class, but then you have what I would call the old guard. Uh, those are more of your columnists and uh, they're certainly not bloggers because they think blogging is of the devil. Sure. Uh, but these are the guys who never leave the media center. In some cases, they're a little uh, advanced in years and they really can't walk the course, but they just sit in there and they hold their little powwows. They go to the media dining and complain about the quality of the filet mignon. And, and then they write their columns that they had half done before the tournament started. And they're not as open to maybe a newcomer or a, a younger person who actually uh, wants to, to hear from them, wants to learn from them, wants to gain some wisdom on how to cover the game, how to approach golfers and, and maybe dig into real stories. That door is kind of closed. And then the other half is what you alluded to a second ago, Adam, and that is kind of the blogging world and the electronic journalist world. Um, they're energetic. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're into it. And, but they're struggling to, to gain traction and audience. And, um, and I understand that because there's 2 million blogs out there. So it's, it's really kind of a strange nether region that golf resides in because the ruling bodies, so you take the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, the USGA, you know, they have a difficult task in trying to figure out who to let in. How do we know that they're legit? You know, if, if the same blogger today were to apply for a credential under the masthead of a prominent newspaper, they'd be in in a flash. It doesn't mean that they were going to do a great job. It just means they worked for a reputable source. So now um, the media directors for tournaments have to decipher, is this blog for real? Is this person a legitimately interested um, reporter? Or is this somebody who made his own letterhead up at home and is just trying to weasel his way into a tournament? It, right. it really isn't. It, it's not a very easy um, process to vet and to get all the way through. And I'm sure that some have snuck through. Uh, the end of the long answer, I'm uh, sorry, it's rambling for so long. The end of the long answer is I believe the, the, that golf suffers in the end because we have a diminished number of really good reporters and really good output in, in written or electronic form. And these days, for the most part, if it's not on Golf Channel, golfers aren't going to get it. You know, that, uh, I, I agree with, with a lot of what you said there, Bill. And, you know, it's funny because um, I, I often joke about being, uh, I'm, I guess, categorically considered a millennial. I'm 34 years old. I'm towards the, the end of that, that break in generational, whatever you want to call it, categories. And, you know, I've kind of, I, I, I myself am torn between the two worlds. You know, I'm not as energetic or as willing to go ahead and, and write these clickbait uh, headlines as the bloggers, some of the, the, the more um, uh, unprofessional bloggers do, but I'm certainly also not of the mindset to write long-form articles much like the uh, the longtime veterans are, and so I often find myself in that limbo a little bit, but, you know, it's, it's very um, uh, encouraging when I see and read people such as yourself and, and others who have been on this show who have really started from the ground they're, they're a grassroots, homegrown entity in this game. And like we've been talking about, you know, for the last half hour, it's just a matter of who you know and, and you know, really relying on the kindness of others and just really staying true to yourself, isn't it? It is. 
Uh, and it's also a, um, you know, we've chosen uh, a sport where the athletes are accessible. You don't, now, listen, let's not be stupid. None of us are going to pick up the phone and get Tiger or Phil on our podcast. It's not right. going to happen. Right. But if you aim with your sights set realistically, rarely do you have to go through a, you know, a PR department or an agent to talk to somebody who may be on tour or is a top amateur college player or on the LPGA tour or certainly a champions tour player. For the most part, if you can find them, they will talk to you. And, and they're, they're well-spoken. Um, I can remember as a, this is kind of weird and, and a little bit of more background on me, but when I was in high school, I began my first job in radio and I was covering the Detroit Pistons. Uh, every home game I was doing radio updates and things like that. So I spent some of my formative years in the bad boys locker room. And I won't, I won't bore you with stories of Dennis Rodman and his cohorts, except to say, <laughs> I don't think you could. That, well, yeah, actually, there are some pretty good stories. Yeah. But, but there's a there's a vast difference in the ability to communicate between most pro athletes and professional golfers. Um, you can infer into that, I guess, whatever you want to. It just happens sure. to be that they're generally pretty well spoken people, and they're thoughtful and insightful, and None of them have guaranteed contracts. Right. This is one of my favorite things about covering the professional game is that if you don't play well, you're not getting paid. And that's a level of pressure that the 220 hitting shortstop will never relate to because he's still getting three and a half mil a year at the very least. And, and so we have this level of, I have this level of admiration for those who play the game for a living and I also really appreciate those who play the game because they just happen to love it. They may not be great at it, but they just love the game. And as long as they're getting around in under four hours, I'm happy to be out there with them, um, run into them on the TV show or put them on the radio show or however we, we get a chance to communicate their story. Because this game, more than any other, is a game of, of, of passion. Um, it's a game that lasts you for your lifetime. And, Unless you have a real anger problem, you'll love the game for a lifetime. Very true. And, you know, it's funny mentioning, um, you know, just the the accessibility to golfers and the ability to pretty much talk to any PGA Tour players, you know, save for the ones that you mentioned, like Tiger and Phil, if you, you know, know the right people. But, you know, uh, Bill, I, I don't know, one of the last questions I want to ask you before we let you go, and thanks again for, for coming on on short notice. Um I don't know if you saw over this past couple of days, um, Golf Magazine published uh, one of their bloggers who's actually been on the show, uh, Sean Zach, uh, published a uh, a very controversial article, I guess you could say, uh, with the focus on Stephen Bowditch, who obviously everyone knows did not have a very uh, good season. Uh, Stephen is actually a friend of the show as well, has been on in the past. Um, what are your thoughts, Bill, on uh, – Pieces written by uh, by anyone really, not just bloggers or or even longstanding uh, veteran writers, that really focus so much on the negative negative side of the game and not so much on actually trying to grow readership in the game. Well, everybody's trying to find a way to stand out in in whatever they do. Uh, some choose to do so through excellence. Some 
try to do so through negativity and maybe a little bit of controversy. Um, you know, it's kind of weird. Uh, and I don't know Sean, so I, I don't want to make sure. any aspersions on his character, but it's kind of weird for me to, t- to see somebody take the time to denigrate a player who already knows he had a bad year. It's, this was not breaking news to Stephen Bonich. He did not read the thing and go, oh, crap, I really was lousy. <laughs> and, and at the same time, um, uh, unless you got that person quoted and maybe recorded and you've had a conversation with them, then, then those opinion pieces are – and I didn't read this, so maybe he did. Maybe he had an interview with Stephen. I'm not really sure. Uh, but those opinion pieces, unless you actually talk to the player – uh, I don't. I don't know that they're worth the time to read. Um, Stephen Bowditch could walk into my living room tomorrow, and I would say, "Who's the guy in the living room?" Right. Um, it's so it's kind of um, it's kind of unfair target practice. I think is is the best way that I would put it. When a guy is down, I'm not sure kicking him is is the best act of um, uh, of editorial kindness that one can show. Now, I'm not adverse to somebody calling out somebody who has a, a major issue. You know, I, I was pretty critical of Justin Rose whining about how easy the course setup was at Hazeltine. I'm like, well, why didn't you win then? Right. Um, so I understand it when the player's asking for it. I'm just, I'm unaware of, of in that particular case of Stephen Bowditch asking for it. Yeah. And uh, I should, to be fair to Sean as well. I mean, uh, Sean's also a friend of the show, as I mentioned earlier, but you know, I, I agree with you, Bill. I mean, it, it, there are times when I've even published things on my site that I've, you know, thought twice about, um, you know, not too long ago, I published a piece about uh, the whole Patrick Reed, uh, his sister saying a few things on social media. And then I took it down right away because at the end of the day, you kind of have to say, Hey, what do you want your site to be? What do you want your name to be tied to? And really, is this any of our business? Uh, at least from a, from that example of the of the Reed family, um, but you know with with uh, the piece about Stephen Bowditch or really any player that isn't playing as well as they they have in the past or what have you, it just kind of seems like you put uh, why why do it you know there's not you're not really benefiting in any way if anything you're just kind of shining the light on something that someone already knew. Well, a good example of that happened uh, with Danny and PJ Willett. Right, uh, Raider Row Ryder Cup, where TJ wrote his very insulting story or column or blog or whatever it is about American fans, and um, we actually did a light-hearted video at Hazeltine where we went around and read some of his comments to fans and asked them for their reaction. It's on our YouTube channel if you want to see it, and none of them attacked back. Not one of them. I couldn't believe it. I, you know, here we are in Minnesota, where they, you know, hockey and cold and Nordic, and I thought they would give give PJ a piece of their mind. And every we didn't edit it selectively. Every single person was like, "Well, that's too bad that he feels that way. We're going to kick the tail, and we'll see you on Sunday." Kind of thing. <laughs> so Ryder Cup gets over, and I was there to do a little piece, uh, just a little blog about it. And I thought, well, let's try something. Let me send a tweet privately to PJ, and see if he'll come on the show with me. That means what what better way to get to the bottom of this? So I sent him a message. And he responded right away and said, absolutely no problem. Give me a few days to let the dust settle. And as soon as my next blog is published, I'll be happy to do it. So I'm like, well, now this is cool. Wow. Next week, I follow up his response. No way. No Ah. chance not doing it. So 
you know, I have a choice at that time to go on full blast and write something or just say, well, you know, I, I wasn't going to do it without his commentary before. Why would I do it now? And that's the route that I chose. So maybe I lost a few clicks or a few readers, but the truth is I'm not an angry person. Um, I, I don't think his comments cost anybody their lives. Um, so I, it was stupid. He, his brother, I asked Danny during Ryder Cup. In fact, my phone blew up during the press conference when I asked the question because apparently it was on Golf Channel. I said, how has what your brother wrote impacted his quality of Christmas gift from you? <laughs> and uh, he had a little bit of fun with that answer. But after that, I'm like, you know what, who am I to come down from on high and wax poetic about the idiocy of, of this guy that I've never met? So I don't know, it's just not my style. And perhaps I'll never have, you know, 100,000 followers, but it's not, not what keeps me awake at night. Amen to that, brother. I'm the same way. And I mean, as long as you can wake up and look yourself in the mirror, then you're doing a good job. So, uh, Bill, I got to say, this has been a lot of fun. And the last question I have for you, what's next for Michigan Golf Live and what should our uh, our listeners know uh, that's on the horizon? You know, I appreciate you asking that, uh, Adam. And, in fact, uh, one of the things that's next, and I've been working on it even a lot today, is in January uh, we're going to launch a, uh, a second network um, that has a more national focus called the Four Golfers Network. So it's on Twitter now under the 4FORE Golfers Network. And we're going to launch a, um, a podcast that's pretty solidly produced with regular features and segments and um, tie into it with uh, travel reviews and equipment reviews and a blog and things. We want, unlike like Michigan Golf Live's website, it's not intended to be a destination for many golfers. It's mostly for our sponsors to go and find out about us. The 4Golfers Network site and podcasts and other collateral, we are hoping will become a popular destination uh, for golfers to go to to find travel ideas and reviews and things like that. And I'd be more than happy to have you contribute to it in any way you wanted to. It's not all me. Uh, again, I don't have the time to do all these things. So we're, we're talking with various people who are in golf media, who do things already that they want another platform to get exposure for. Um, I'm not, the guy who has to be front and center on everything. Um, what I do with Michigan Golf Live and the Four Golfers Network is really about a half of my professional life. Uh, in the other half, I, I, I do an entirely different thing that you would need another 20 minutes for me to explain to you. But let's put it this way. Um, many weekends with Michigan Golf Live, we are spoiled to death at five-star resorts and great destinations. But during the week, most of the time I'm spending it um, helping spread the word for rescue missions, homeless shelters around the country, and helping them in their communication. So I don't live and die by golf, but I like to do what I do as well as I can. And so the Four Golfers Network is designed to kind of open up some more eyes. When people see the name Michigan, they think it's exactly only for this state. And we'd like to uh, kind of grow that umbrella a little bit. So we're, we're launching a secondary network here soon, and if I can figure out how it all works, we'll, we'll make a go at it. <laughs> well, that's exciting stuff, and, Bill, I would be more than happy to contribute however I could. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. Bill Hobson, executive producer and host of Michigan Golf Live. You can follow him on Twitter, at MGLBill. Uh, Bill, once again, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate the invitation, man. Let's do it again.
All right, and listeners, we'll be back again next week or thereabouts with another guest. Until then, this is your buddy Adam signing off.